Hello and welcome back to Cover to Cover. I am here with Chiara Crisafulli, an Italian woman living in Portugal and a poet. And we're talking about Elena Ferranti's Neapolitan novels. Chiara, we ended the previous conversation at a crucial point in book one where Lila and Lenu drop their dolls down through the grate into the cellar, down into the murky depths. <laughs> yeah, and for me, the scene with the dolls and the climb up the stairs, it's, it's very powerful. But not just for what the little girls actually do, but because it establishes a pattern. Uh, I think they imitate each other, then they reject each other, but it's like they always need to be close to one another. So they rely on that friendship to help them get where they want to go in life. Yes, now that cellar is a very murky place, a kind of Neapolitan inferno. You remember when Lenu comments about how personal history is to Leela? She says, hang on, where is it? Fascism, Nazism, the war, the allies, the monarchy, the republic. Leela turned them into streets, houses, faces. Don Achille and the Black Market, Alfredo Peluso the Communist, the Camerist grandfather of the Solaras. And Lila goes on like that to list a, you know, a bunch of people, including her own father, including Lenu's father. And in Lila's eyes, she says, all of these people were stained to the marrow by shadowy crimes, all hardened criminals or acquiescent accomplices, all bought for practically nothing. Now, in English, that stain to the marrow, that is a very powerful phrase. Yeah, Lila says that uh, also, that these are the people that we carry in our blood. So violence is a permanent feature of their environment. Um, for example, I remember when Lila starts to hang out with Pasquale, She's very curious about what happens before. And you know, in Italian, we say prima. So prima. So she likes to gather information explaining the violence that they have been experiencing ever since they were born. So, so what does this word prima mean exactly? Prima is before. Before. So okay. It's, it's the, the time before. Yeah. So the story that they didn't know because they weren't born. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I mean, there's, there are a lot of pretty awful people in these books, uh, particularly the male characters. <laughs> Is there a particular character that you detest? Yeah, Don Achille. Uh, I, you know, I come from a place where we know this word very well, Don. Generally, Don refers to the most powerful <laughs> asshole of a specific place. So when people have their name preceded by a Don, they're automatically according to an unwritten law, asking for respect, the kind of respect which the other person will not be free to retract. And when in the book you read about Don Achille, you see exactly that kind of man, one who everyone is afraid of because he is the ruler of the neighborhood. Yeah, and if, I guess if you borrow money from someone like him and you don't pay up on time, you know what kind of methods will be used to enforce the debt. 
Yeah, better not to know. <laughs> well, Don Achille rules the neighborhood and after he's murdered, he leaves a legacy. But also, he's the man our girls face. So he gives them money, basically to get rid of them. But instead of buying dolls, they buy a book as if suddenly they want to change the course of events of their Rione. So they are part of that new generation. And I think the fact that they buy the novel Little Women is a beautiful symbol of reusing dirty money to buy something noble. Yes, absolutely. It's a, and it's, of course, it's a book about female ambition and realizing those ambitions. So listen... Sticking with these horrible males for a minute, um, how about the Solara brothers? You know, through their father, obviously they're connected to the evil that lurks under the ground. They're connected to the old debts, the old resentments, the ancient hatreds, the black market dealing of Don Achille and people like him. They're connected to the betrayals, the deceptions, the dishonesty, all the stuff that's lurking in the shadows, under the grate, ready to rise up and envelop the characters in their fumes. Yeah. And Leela seems to see and understand everything and everyone in the neighborhood, including, obviously, the Solaras. So she knows how to play the game, and she also knows how to win. In every scene where she's involved, right from the time she holds a knife to Marcello Solara's throat, or uh, if you remember also the time when she's a married woman and then she's a gorgeous, super fashionable movie star-like woman who enters the pastry shop and asks for favors. So it doesn't matter what she wants. She just goes and she gets it, like no one else does. For me, there's a delicious confrontation of views when Lenu tells Leela about the fight that she had at school with the, the teacher and the priest about the the nature of the Holy Spirit. And I remember Leela replying to her and saying something like, you know, are you still wasting time with these things, Lenu? You're getting your knickers in a twist about theology? Come on, girl, you know? And then Leela goes on and, oh, she gives us this wonderful vision of lava. And, I mean, this is Naples. You know, we're less than 10 kilometers from Vesuvius, one of the most dangerous volcanoes in the world. And let me find it here. She says, We are flying over a ball of fire. The part that has cooled floats on the lava. On that part, we construct the buildings, the bridges, and the streets. And every so often, the lava comes out of Vesuvius, or causes an earthquake that destroys everything. We get microbes, we get war, we get poverty, we get suffering. Yeah, and she says that it was the devil who invented the world, not the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit. She's really geniale, isn't she? She is, she's geniale. And her dad is a shoemaker. Yeah, that's a perfect choice. I mean, being a shoemaker was a typical trade of the time. But then Lila, who is a super perceptive learner, starts designing shoes with her brother. And shoes suggest footprints, a path. Lila wants to put her imprint on reality, shape her own life, her own path. That scene at the end of book one is incredibly traumatic when the Solara brothers, whom 
Leela had specifically banned from attending the wedding reception. They walk in and Leela is stunned. She immediately begins remonstrating with Stefano. And of course, to add insult to injury, she sees that Marcello is wearing the shoes that she designed and which was supposed to be a very special possession of Stefano's. Yeah, but for Stefano, what really counts is money and power. And there is a very touching moment just before that, if you remember, when Lenou washes Lila before she puts on her wedding dress and they share a moment of touching intimacy. And reading this passage, both as a reader and especially as a woman, I really appreciated the fact that the writer isn't 20 years old. Oh, why? Uh, because I think that when you're that young, it's not easy to be able to appreciate a beautiful friend's body without envy. Mm. And, you know, we're speaking about two women, but two Italian women from the South. Right, okay. <laughs> well, let's listen to that wonderful moment of intimacy between Lila and Lenu. The 12th of March arrived, a mild day that was almost like spring. Lila wanted Lenu to come early to her old house so that she could help her wash, do her hair, dress. She sent her mother away. They were alone. She sat on the edge of the bed in underpants and bra. Next to her was the wedding dress, which looked like the body of a dead woman. In front of them, on the hexagonal tiled floor, was the copper tub full of boiling water. She asked Lenu abruptly, Do you think I'm making a mistake? How? By getting married. Are you still thinking about the speechmaster? No. I'm thinking of the teacher. Why didn't she want me to come in? Because she's a mean old lady. Lilu was silent for a while, staring at the water that sparkled in the tub. Then she said, Whatever happens, you'll go on studying. Two more years. Then I'll get my diploma. And I'm done. No. Don't ever stop. I'll give you the money. You should keep studying. Thanks. But at certain point, school is over. Not for you. You're my brilliant friend. You have to be the best of all, boys and girls. Hey, help me. Otherwise, I'll be late. I'd never seen her naked. I was embarrassed. I washed her with slow, careful gestures. I still have in my ears the sound of the dripping water. I had a confusion of feelings and thoughts. But in the end, there was only the hostile thought that I was washing her, from her hair to the soles of her feet, early in the morning, just so that Stefano could sully her in the course of the night. I helped her dry off, dress, put on the wedding dress that I had chosen for her. She put on the shoes that she herself had designed. Oh, they're ugly. It's not true. <laughs> but yes, look. The dreams of the mind have ended up under defeat. She turned towards me with a sudden expression of fear. What's going to happen to me, Leno? 
I think that's a, a wonderful line. The dreams of the mind have fallen under the feet. Tell me, in Italian, do you have a lot of idioms connected with feet and shoes? Uh, the word that comes to mind for me is the verb uh, calpestare, to trample. So by wearing those shoes, the shoes which Stefano had in a sense won Lila's love, Marcello Solara is trampling all over their marriage, mm. which hasn't even begun. So a guy who Stefano promised would be banned from the wedding, but he enters the restaurant where they are having the wedding reception, wearing the shoes that her husband promised he would treasure forever. Promised, promised. Ah, promised. <laughs> Marcello and his brother, they're, they're, they're thugs. And Stefano, right? Not Stefano, Stefano. Stefano. And Stefano is kind of a strategic thug. That's how I see him. But those guys are engaged in a never-ending competition for power. And Lila, let's face it, Lila is just one element in the equation. You know, in a neighborhood with that kind of mentality, the husband rules. Stefano wants Lila because she's a prize, but he also desperately wants money and always to make more money. But Lila is no ordinary woman. So she will just need to get acquainted a bit with this new wife role. And very soon in book two, she will say to Lenu something like, if I want something, it's enough to act like a bitch. Yeah, she's tough. <laughs> yeah. And she understands how to manipulate the Solara brothers as well. I really enjoyed the scene when the big wedding photograph that the Solara want to use to make money is destroyed by Lila and Lenu and eventually becomes a piece of art. This is a time when Lila can find peace, when she says to Lenu, I no longer like what I did, and I no longer like what I'm doing. She's more or less deleting the old version of herself. Yeah, and there's also a remarkable tour de force a scene at the end of book two, when Lenu goes to the sausage factory to find Lila. Lenu has come back to Naples from Pisa and she's just received two things. First of all, she gets a packet of papers from their old elementary school, Maestro Olivero, who, who has died. And that packet turns out to contain the only copy of The Blue Fairy, the story that Lila wrote when she was 10 years old. And the other thing that Lena has just received is the exciting news from Milan that her novel is going to be published. Yeah, amazing, isn't it? And Lenu sets off to find Lila in the poor area where Lila is living with Enzo and her son. There's been a long period of silence between the two friends, if you remember. Their lives are developing in different places and completely different ways. Lenu has been away at the school Scuola Normale Superiore in Pisa to get her degree. On her side, Lila left her husband Stefano, became pregnant by her lover Nino, and then went to live with Enzo, a man who has been in love with her since they were kids. And despite the tough job in the sausage factory, Lila seems to have found a kind of peace again. Okay, let's listen to that moment when the two friends find each other again in the stink of the sausage factory. Lila. Che fai? Lila's eyes were feverish, her cheeks more hollow than usual, 
and yet she seemed large, tall. She wore a blue smock, but over it a kind of long coat, and on her feet she wore army boots. One of her hands was bandaged. The damp material gave off a smell even more offensive than the smell in the air. Come, let's get out of here. Two minutes! How did you find me? Hey, did you get your degree? Yes, but an even more wonderful thing happened, Leela. I wrote a novel, and it's being published in April. Leela's complexion was grey. She seemed bloodless, and yet she flared up. Lenu saw the red move up along her throat, her cheeks up to the edge of her eyes, so close that she squeezed them as if fearing that the flame would burn the pupils. Then she took Eleanor's hand and kissed it, first on the back, then on the palm. Oh, I'm happy for you. But in the moment, Lenu scarcely noticed the affection of the gesture. She was struck by the swelling of Leela's hands and the wounds, cut old and new, a fresh one on the thumb of her left hand, whose edges were inflamed, and she could imagine that under the bandage on her right hand, she had an even worse injury. What have you done to yourself? Oh, nothing. Stripping meat off the bones ruins your fingers. You strip the meat? <laughs> they put me where they like. Talk to Bruno. Bruno? The only reason he turns up here is to see who of us he can fuck in the agent room. Lila. It's the truth. Are you ill? I'm fine. Here in the storerooms, they pay me extra for cold damage. The man called. Seru, the two minutes are up. Oh, coming. Maestra Oliviero died. It was bound to happen. She let me have the blue fairy. What's the Blue Fairy? The book you wrote when you were ten. The story is still beautiful today. I read it again and discovered that, without realizing it, I've always had it in my mind. That's where my book comes from. Ha! <laughs> from this nonsense. Then whoever printed it is crazy. The man shouted. I'm waiting for you, Cerullo! Oh, you're a pain in the ass! She put the packet in her pocket and took me under the arm. We went toward the exit. I told her that Rinuccio was cute and very intelligent. I praised the neighbor, asked about Enzo. Do you like living with him? Yes. Will you have children? <laughs> We're not together. No. No, I don't feel like it. Maybe he's like a brother. No, I like him. So? Oh, I don't know. No such. He's waiting. They stopped beside the fire. Leela gestured towards the guard. Watch out for that guy. When you go out, he might accuse you of stealing a mortadella just so he can search you and put his hands all over you. I went away in great agitation. Inside was the struggle to leave her. The old conviction that without her... Nothing truly important would ever happen to me. After a few quick steps, I couldn't help it. I turned to wave again. I saw her standing beside the bonfire, without the shape of a woman in that outfit, as she leaved through the pages of the Blue Fairy. 
Suddenly, she threw it on the fire. It's a special moment um, and a very graphic moment when Leela, wearing a big shapeless coat over her blue smock, casually throws the blue fairy, the story, into the fire. And I mean, it's no coincidence that she has a blue smock. It's, it's like the, the fairy has been transformed into this shapeless lump beside a roaring fire and the stink of all the meat, you know. But also, of course, you know, seen with Lenu's eyes, that story represents the seed of her own ambition, her own writing career. And it's almost as though that seed, the seed of her own novel, is just being casually destroyed. Yeah, but that juvenile story, I think, has served its time. Lila is a lifelong learner, and now she's excited again, intellectually, by Enzo, who is like her. He always has a thirst to know things. I guess he arouses her in the place which counts for her the most, her mind. Yeah, I mean, Maestra Olivero, the elementary school teacher who's just died, she was always incredibly hard on Leela. Yeah, because she liked her too much. And she's permanently angry with Leela's family because they haven't given their daughter the opportunity to study. Overall, why do you think these characters are so endearing? I mean, like, why do we, as readers, why do we end up sort of rooting for them so strongly? Well, to me, it's because they master not just their best qualities, but also their weaknesses. And they do it in a way that make them heroes without actually having superpowers. I personally can really relate to both of them. And I remember Lenu opens book two saying something like, I understood I preferred being, she says in Italian, silenziosamente infelice, which means uh, something like quietly unhappy. And she also says that she has this state of being quietly unhappy because she can have violent reactions. I mean, how can you love a character this real. Mm, I just love both of those two main characters that they're marvellous. And I suppose for me, one of the reasons why Leela is so captivating is because she's so determined. Coming back to that vision of the lava, you know, she knows that she can't escape the world the way it is with the lava bubbling up under her feet from the grate. She can't escape all the old secrets, the old hatred swirling around her in the Rione. And yet she's going to continue to fight the good fight. She's going to continue to stand up for her own values and she will continue to resist subordination violently if necessary. Mm. Yeah, in the end, I think the only way to escape the heavy hand of the neighbourhood is that they never give up on their dreams, whatever they are. So these girls write books, then they grow up, Lila raises a son the way she wants, and maybe they will both fall in love with men they have always known. Who knows? <laughs> I think we have to wait for book three and four. Exactly, we do. Chiara, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Uh, thanks, Dan. And in Boca Lupo with cover to cover. Good luck. <laughs> Thanks so much.
Thank you.